Welcome to the Woman Warriors Podcast, where we're working to help you call a truce with your anxiety. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Now, here's your host, Elizabeth Cush, LCPC. Happy New Year and welcome back to the Woman Warriors podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cush, and I'm excited for the year to come in podcasting. Around this time, you hear about New Year's resolutions, things to do differently, how to make your life better. But it always feels like New Year's resolutions are focused on our imperfections and things that we don't like about ourselves. So I recently wrote a blog about maybe it's time to set New Year intentions based on our values so that we can live more meaningful, purposeful lives. I'll provide a link in the show notes to that blog. You can find it at progressioncounseling.com forward slash business blog. With that in mind, my guest this week for the first podcast episode of 2019 is Jenna Hollenstein. She's a non-diet dietitian who helps people struggling with chronic dieting, disordered eating, and eating disorders. She uses a combination of intuitive eating, mindfulness techniques, and meditation to help her clients move toward greater peace, health, and wellness. Jenna's private practice is located in New York City, where she consults with clients in person and virtually. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified dietitian nutritionist in New York State. She is also a certified intuitive eating counselor and an open heart project meditation guide. In 2018, Jenna joined the board of the Center for Mindful Eating. She teaches at mindfulness retreats in the United States and France and has been featured in U.S. News and World Report, Health, Mindful, Vogue, Elle, Glamour, and Fox News. Jenna is the author of Understanding Dietary Supplements, a handy guide to the evaluation and use of vitamins, minerals, herbs, and botanicals for both consumers and clinicians and the memoir, Drinking to Distraction. Her third book, Eat to Love, A Mindful Guide to Transforming Your Relationship with Food, Body, and Life, is going to be available this month, January 2019. And we'll be talking a little bit about her practice, her focus, and her new book. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. This week's episode is sponsored by Progression Counseling, providing Maryland residents with individual, group, and online counseling for the overstressed, overwhelmed, and overanxious. Find out more at progressioncounseling.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Woman Warriors podcast. And I just wanted to welcome you, Jenna, to the podcast. And if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about, you know, who you are, your work, and what inspired you to do the work that you do. Sure. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to speak with you. 
a lot of the time I'm, I refer to myself as a nutrition therapist. Nice. Um, I like that better. Because, yeah. The word dietitian has that unfortunate word diet in it. <laughs> and while inherently the word diet is not a dirty word, um, in practice, what diets have done to people um, make it a dirty word in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, nutrition therapist is a little bit more representative of the type of work that I do, which is very like psychologically oriented. You know, the client I was just speaking with, we were talking about how we have our physical bodies and our emotional bodies. And Mm. most of those two circles overlap. So um, basically I do what I do in working with mostly women, but also men in helping them transform their relationship with food and their bodies is because I see personally and professionally the effects that the diet culture has had on all of us, Mm. um, you know, who have been marinating in its propaganda since a very early age, particularly if you live in a woman's body, you know, and just trying to help people really figure out what they want rather than internalizing the value system of the diet culture and living their lives according to that. Yeah. Well, I noticed on your website, I think you called yourself a non-diet dietitian or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, which is awesome. But so what got you started on this path of really speaking up, you know, and... Or speaking out about the impact that this whole dieting culture has had on women. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a funny kind of um, nonlinear path that I've had because I've been a dietitian for almost 20 years now. But for most of that time, I was not practicing as a dietitian. And a big part of that was because privately I was struggling with my own stuff including disordered eating and a drinking problem. Mm -hmm. And then more sort of publicly, I just wasn't comfortable with what we were trained to do, which was, in my view, other people might feel differently. Um, I know the intention is to help people, but I think that we were trained to sort of tell people what to eat. Yeah, And um, I didn't find that very useful. Because I knew how I responded when anybody told me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I spent the first 15 or so years of being a dietitian on the um, research and writing side of things. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. editing a nutrition journal, then working within continuing medical education and doing science writing and editing all along. To try to stay closer to the people trying to find the answers. And realizing how difficult it really was to find those answers, because there were so many variables that, that are very difficult to control for when you're doing nutrition research. Yeah. You know, which gradually sort of gave me the message that it might be better to teach people to listen to their own bodies than to try to tell them or even shame them into eating certain things or doing certain types of activities for the purposes of health, what if they could be reconnected with the intelligence that their bodies possess to drive them, mm. you know, because 
the the scientific research seems to flip flop. You know, I I joke about eggs being, you know, the the villain in the eighties, wow. right? And you know how we were all freaked out about cholesterol, as if you know consuming cholesterol in a food automatically gave us high cholesterol in our blood, right? And, you know, we didn't just digest it. And now, you know, eggs obviously are so central to so many of the the, the protein loving diets that are out there. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And sugar is the villain, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I, this all seems like perfect evidence to shift our allegiance from outside things telling us what to do to inside things. Well, that is such a perfect segue into what I wanted to ask you about next. In your book, you talk about, so Jenna is the author of a up and coming soon to be published book called Eat to Love, which I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy for. And you describe this concept of magical eating and how um, it's impacted women in particular in our society, but culturally, I think, too, probably across the world, just because media is so prevalent. Mm-hmm. And um, But talk to me a little bit about that, you know, how you view, you know, what is magical eating? And yeah. how is it impacting women? Uh, yeah, thank you for that mm-hmm. segue. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that that term magical eating was actually coined by my friend and meditation instructor, Susan Piver. Mm-hmm. And I, I artfully stole it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll permission. be, I'll be intro I'll be interviewing Susan in an upcoming episode. So that's exciting oh, awesome. too. Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. Um, but what we were noticing, cause we were, so we were teaching a course online called the Dharma of diet. Mm-hmm. And it was basically about how a meditation practice could help, reconnect you with that body wisdom that Mm. you possess and what we were realizing and this was part of my own sort of like understanding of the role that diets have played in people's lives it it's almost as if diets or you know a way of eating because a lot of people are very reticent to call what they do a diet they call it a lifestyle they call it eating for health or whatever Mm -hmm. but it almost seems as if you know we are trying to find a way to avoid the inevitable meaning old age sickness and death yeah (laughs) meaning suffering and impermanence Mm. you know and so there's this tendency and and this is you know, not necessarily an original thought on our part. I mean, this is largely sold to us by the diet industry. The, this idea is if you just find the right diet, if you just get your body to the right size or shape or weight or um, body fat percentage, you will somehow sidestep suffering. Hmm. You won't experience pain. You'll be happy. Right. You'll have... You'll feel like you life fit you in, right? Yes, right, yes, yes, right. yes. And it's it's so true. And it's almost, you know, there are some really interesting books out there that, that talk more about the, the spiritual and almost religious connotations of diets. Like there's this great book called The Religion of Thinness. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it talks about how diets, as, you know, the number of people identifying with a with an organized religion have decreased, the number of people sort of organizing with a, uh, identifying with a certain way of eating have, has increased. And they serve largely the same purpose. 
you know, they, they give you an instant community. They give you a set of rules to follow and sort of consequences. Mm. Yeah. And I have found that we have an incredible distaste for uncertainty. And we love to be, yeah, in some ways we love to be told what to do, but I don't think that that's inherently so. I think, I think we've been taught in so many different ways not to trust ourselves Mm -hmm. that we think that being told what to do is sort of the path of least resistance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so that really finds its way into the, the way that we feed our bodies. Yeah. Well, and I feel like in particular, I mean, obviously my podcast is focused on women, but I think that women are more impacted on a daily basis by the magical eating, um, just that whole dieting culture. Although I know there are, you know, men who struggle with this as well in terms of ideal body weight and image. And I get that. I'm not trying to discount that, but I was, um, because I've been, you know, reading your book, I was sort of attuned to this past week more of when I'm hearing messages about food or Mm -hmm. thinness or, and I was just, whether it was in a magazine or television or, you know, overhearing a conversation, it's just so present. I mean, just media and politics and... I mean, I feel like this whole Me Too movement has taught us again, like, we need to shame ourselves as, you know, sexual human beings. And we shouldn't, I mean, oh, yeah, it definitely is sold to women differently. I Mm -hmm. I agree that it is sold to men um, more and more because Mm -hmm. companies want to continue to grow and increase their sales. And part of how they do that is by expanding their, their targets. Yeah. You know, Weight Watchers has expanded their target to include teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of other, you know, players in the diet industry have expanded their targets to, to you know, focus on on men. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's the tone of it and the nuance of it is slightly different, though. And, you know, it, it, it just doesn't, it to me, it doesn't compare with the way that it's sold to women and girls. Yeah. Because, you know, you think about how... I have a three-year-old son, for example, and, you know, I can't tell you how many trucks and cars he received for his second birthday. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, his little girlfriend, who's a few months younger than him, you know, receives things to adorn her body, mm. like dresses and, you know, makeup stuff. And it's all about princesses and being admired. Mm-hmm. And so, from a very early age, girls are taught that their most valuable currency is their beauty mm-hmm. and their ability to be pleasing to the eye. So we're taught from a very early age to be objects in a sense and to objectify ourselves so that things like makeup and fashion become pastimes. Mm-hmm. While boys are sort of like more into doing things and building things and being active and things like that. Yeah. It, it's it's so it's very nuanced and it's very entrenched and it's very gendered and I I think that even as diets have shape-shifted over the years, it's still very entrenched. The whole, like, strong is the new skinny, healthy is the new skinny. I mean, it's all, it's all still the same thing. Yeah. It, it's not encouraging us to come back to consult with our wise and rich 
bodies and hearts and minds to figure out what matters to me. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I have clients who have told me that the message around food came so early in life for them. I mean, Mm -hmm. whether, you know, you're eating the wrong things or you're getting chubby or let's all go on the diet as a family. um, Those messages started at like six or seven. And just that the fact that it's so entrenched like that really brings it home to me. It really is. It Mm. really is. And I think for the most part, where it begins, it often begins with people with good intentions. Mm-hmm. You know, if if your mother, for example, was teased for being chubby at any stage in her life, she wants to save you from that that torment. And yet, by trying to superimpose any kind of control or, or even aggressive guidance... Uh, in terms of how you eat and and how you feel about your body mm-hmm. and the you know the kind of implicit value system there of like a thinner body is a better body that she's repeating history without meaning to you know mm-hmm. um, I mean I often think of eating as like one of the first ways that we just express our autonomy in our own individual agency yeah and so when you take that away it distorts what we basically are born knowing Mm. And then we develop all sorts of reactive behaviors in response to that. Right. Well, and too, I'm thinking about because so much of our media and our cultural norms come from this very white patriarchal Mm -hmm. society, the impact that must have on minorities, too, that if this is the look, you know, white and thin and fit, like for women, that, that, that. To wake up every day and not look like that or look different from that mm-hmm. would be really hard. Well, yeah, I mean, there there is a lot to what you just said. I mean, I, I think that the, the interesting thing about the health at every size and intuitive eating and the non-diet approach Mm-hmm. To me, this has been one of the most interesting things about it is how active these folks are in the social, in the various social justice movements, because this is not an issue of food. It's not just an issue of body. It's not just an issue of health. It's an issue of economics, of social status, mm-hmm. of white supremacy, mm-hmm. of I mean, just it, it expands way beyond ableism, um, you yeah. know, sort of heteronormative culture and all of these different things that, you know, if you happen to fit into that narrow um, window, then nothing seems awry to you. But mm-hmm. most people do not. Right. right. <laughs> and so we are gently and not so gently guided to have a body that's very different from the body that we have mm. and very few people can actually achieve what is considered to be the, the goal. Yeah. Yeah. And so that sort of places most of us at a deficiency, you know, in a very disadvantaged um, position. And so we spend our time and money and effort and energy trying to get someplace that we're never going to get. Right. Chasing this thing that you can't possibly attain. 
Right. And, and the biggest trade-off is that we don't do other stuff because mm. we're using our limited resources to, to move toward this thing that's never going to happen. Mm. And we don't use our, those resources of time and money and energy and experiences to do other things that maybe we, we care more about, but we haven't even really been encouraged to have a, a conscious thought about. Yeah, exactly. Well, and two, and how, uh, you know, if all your energy is going toward working to this ideal that you, that it's impossible to attain, whether it's just not who you're, you know, where, how your body was born, or that you don't fit that look, um, mm-hmm. it impacts your health and your mental health. And I, I did want to read a quick quote, if that's okay, from your sure. book that I thought feels relevant so now i have to find it hold on i don't think i've ever heard a quote from my own book (laughs) (laughs) there you go well you will now okay okay so you say sadly as the result of our magical eating we're more likely to suffer from depression anxiety disordered eating and in some causes and in some cases sorry eating disorders and to have lower self-confidence ambition cognitive function and achievement. Mm -hmm. This is a a direct result of the message that our worth is based on our weight and that of that messages impact on our thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and how we live our lives, which is just what you were saying. Yeah. It really just reaches into every corner of our experience. Yeah. Yeah. And in such a subtle, as you said, such a subtle, um, oftentimes not direct way yeah it's true yeah so you know as i said at the beginning you know you call yourself a non-diet dietitian so why don't diets work you go into that a little bit in the book but you know why don't diets work i mean there are a lot of different reasons um physically when we try to deprive our bodies of energy to you know, decrease their size, our bodies fight that by becoming more efficient, Mm -hmm. you know, so they Mm -hmm. learn to exist on fewer calories. They also change the way we experience hunger in a sense, you know, food looks more appealing. It smells more delicious. You know, we, we, we become preoccupied with eating. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a great, the study done, I think it was in the 50s by Ansel Keys in Minnesota. They talk about it in detail in the Intuitive Eating book. Mm-hmm. And basically, a group of young, healthy, 20-something men who had never had any eating issues were deprived of 50% of their calorie needs. So their their diets were cut in half, basically. And what they found was that their body weight decreased by about 25%. Mm-hmm. Not fifty percent, because their bodies became more efficient. But then they became obsessed with food, and mm-hmm. they were reading cookbooks and talking about recipes, and you know, doing all kinds of things to access food. People broke into the kitchen. I think, wow. um, you know, some people binged when they finally had access to food. It, it was very distressing, just physically and psychologically. So that's always a great. Um, study to look back to, to see what the effects of essentially starvation, you know, are on people who don't have the same programming that their bodies need to change, right? So there are just basic physiologic effects. Mm -hmm. But then psychologically, like what I was talking about in terms of 
threatening our autonomy and our own agency, you know, when we're deprived, we rebel. Yeah. Um, when we feel a sense of scarcity, we get stressed out. It's a physical stress to not have enough energy, and it's an emotional stress. Mm. And, you know, I, I experienced this, as I talk about in the book very briefly, when I was pregnant and told not to eat certain foods because of the risk of foodborne illness. And I normally I couldn't care less about those foods, but in that case, that's all I wanted. <laughs> it, like, drove my craving. Yeah. Because it took away my, my sense of freedom. Mm. And I would eat those foods and then, like, spend the afternoon, like, on Google looking for, like, what's the likelihood I'm really going to get listeria, you know? <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, I know. It was crazy. So, but it was so just, much energy around. Yeah. <laughs> it was, but it was also so human, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. It was so human. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, those are some of, like, the physical and psychological effects of why diets don't work. I mean... You know, when you think about the, just the basic intelligence of our bodies, you know, they know when to breathe. They know how to circulate energy and, and nutrients to the cells. They, the heart knows when to pump. The idea that we need to control somehow our intake to change the way our bodies are naturally is sort of this, like, an arrogance, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. We're not all meant to look the same. No. Some bodies are going to be bigger. Some bodies are going to be smaller. Some bodies are going to be more muscular. Some bodies might have more fat content, you know. Mm-hmm. We have a natural set point that the body defends. This is part of its intelligence. Those of us who are able to store more fat actually have an evolutionary benefit. We can survive when there is scarcity. Right, you know? right. When These the- days, but we do often, you know, impose scarcity on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah, know? absolutely. Well, and, you know, I'm thinking, too, about what we have access to as well, I mean, in terms of food. And yes, you know, nutritionally, it's important to eat healthy whatever, I'm going to say the bad word, like the right foods. But so if you're in an environment where most of what's available to you is quick, fast food, maybe not so healthy food, that does have an impact on your body, but you don't have a lot of control over that too. Well, and that's why, you know, this is an issue of economics and and, yeah. and social status. But, mm-hmm. but it's also important to note that just like the body adjusts how it metabolizes calories when we are depriving ourselves, mm-hmm. it can also adjust how it metabolizes nutrients when it gets too much or not enough. Yeah. So our body's pretty smart. They're pretty smart. You know, <laughs> like if anybody who's ever taken a multivitamin and then had like bright yellow pee, yeah. ha- like has witnessed this, like that's your body saying, oh, I don't really need that much riboflavin. Thanks, but no thanks. I'll just get rid of it the way I know how. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's great to eat a variety of foods, mm-hmm. um, but that is not equally accessible to all people right right you know Mm -hmm. and our bodies learn to manage Mm -hmm. yeah but also food you know food provides a source of pleasure and comfort to people and it's a relatively inexpensive source of pleasure and comfort and so if you are you know in a situation where you don't have a lot of sources of pleasure and comfort and food becomes that for you then 
that can alter your relationship with food too. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, that's that's a, a completely understandable oh, type of response. Absolutely, yeah. I feel like that is something that I normalize for clients a lot. Like if food was the thing that brought you comfort and helped you manage when there was stress, like that makes sense to me, you know, it yeah. became, you know, it can become a sort of a coping mechanism, but two, um, yeah, it makes sense. Like you were looking for things that made you feel better and, well, right. f- and food's really good at that. Right. It, you know, that also kind of, I think is related to the food, style as spirituality thing that we were talking about a few minutes ago, you know, there's almost like this fear of pleasure. Mm. And it's just, it's so interesting to me because I think of food as so inherently pleasurable and food is so inherently emotional. You know, we always talk about like emotional eating and how to avoid emotional eating, but you know, food is emotional. Yeah. You know, it's how we identify with our culture. It's how we celebrate. It's how we, um, comfort ourselves when we're sad you know sometimes Mm -hmm. it just doesn't have to be the only way we cope with sadness or other strong emotions but um you know the idea that deriving pleasure from food is somehow dangerous is very very undermining i think to a a just normal relationship with food Mm -hmm. and so in your work with clients i know um the your book talks a lot about how Buddhism has sort of shaped your practice and how you're helping your clients and how you're helping people create a better relationship with food and their bodies. So I guess what I'm asking is, how does Buddhism shape what you do? But also, how do you help clients? What is it that you do? Well, how do you guys work towards a better relationship with self and food? Yeah, I mean, I do think that one of the basic foundations of Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist meditation Mm -hmm. that is useful to the food and body relationship is that that we have inherent goodness that we have like basic pre-existing goodness Mm -hmm. that we don't have to be different to be considered worthy or whole Mm -hmm. and so you know just the idea that the body you have right now deserves care and respect and to be fed consistently mm-hmm. is a really good starting place for people. And then, you know, through a mindfulness practice and in many cases a meditation practice, people do develop the capacity to stay with their experience and to both observe what's going on physically moment to moment, mm-hmm. you know, in 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 the um in their capacity to recognize and respond to hunger and fullness in real time. Mm-hmm. And also to ride the waves of emotion so that we become more comfortable with the ups and the downs and we don't need to grasp onto the ups and resist the downs sometimes yeah. with, you know, um, eating or doing something food and body wise to avoid feeling discomfort. I mean, that that to me is like a natural relationship between Buddhist philosophy and meditation and the food and body relationship. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because so much of what, you know, you're describing is so much of how I approach therapy for anxiety because so much yeah. of anxiety is discomfort, yes. you know, and it's it's like let let's 
stop fighting it. Let's let's allow the discomfort to be there and maybe feel a little more comfortable with it. I yeah, I, I think that the sixty four thousand dollar question mm-hmm. um, is the ability to discern the discomfort that's worth leaning into and exploring Mm -hmm. and the discomfort that maybe you should kind of respectfully back away from. Yeah. 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 (laughs) You know, because um, I've been doing a a lot of reading and research about trauma and mindfulness and, you know, meditation and mindfulness are not um, panaceas, you know, this, they're not for everyone. And if someone has trauma or PTSD you know, some of these practices can actually intensify their suffering rather than relieve it. Sure. Um, a lot yeah. of the, you know, concepts in Buddhism are to become more comfortable with discomfort. But again, mm. there's a difference between the com- the discomfort that's sort of at your edge that you could sort of um, safely explore and the discomfort of trauma in, in the sense that, like, your your body is not really aware that it's not in danger. Yes. Yeah. Well, and yes, trauma brings a whole um, another level of, I think, too, just exploration, but compassion Mm -hmm. within a a mindfulness and meditation practice. You know, if you've experienced trauma, there has to be self-compassion for where you are, whatever that is, and the discomfort and the yeah, with what's happening for you. Right. And, you know, meditation and mindfulness can become another way in which we sort of should on ourselves. Yes. You know, because yes, everyone's yes. doing it. It must be good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and if for some reason you're either told or you experience the fact that mindfulness and meditation might not be right for you at this time, feeling badly about that mm-hmm. is not going to be useful to you. No. No, you know, um, but developing a, an ability to speak to yourself with compassion and saying, okay, well, this is what's going on right now. And so I can explore other routes of working with myself as opposed to against myself. And maybe at another time, I can explore a mindfulness practice when, my, when I feel more stabilized. Right, right. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. A hundred percent. Right. Because, right, we don't want to be shaming ourselves into like, I should be <laughs> a better I meditator know. or a better... Yeah, I should be at a place where I can do mindfulness or whatever it is. I know. We do such a number on ourselves. And Ooh, that is yeah. cultural, too. Yes. You know, this idea that the harder we are on ourselves, the more we'll achieve. Mm-hmm. But that seems to fall short when it comes to taking care of ourselves. I know. Well, and <laughs> right. <laughs> and why is taking care of ourselves so darn hard? <laughs> I know. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think we have been misinformed that we need to do things a certain way in order for them to have value. Mm. You know, I, I'm discovering every day that small, imperfect steps can be really wonderful ways of taking care of myself. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of my goals for 2018 was to redevelop some sort of a yoga practice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was finding myself about three quarters of the way through the year and re- reflecting on that goal. And I was no closer to that than I was at the beginning of the year. 
And yet my body was sort of asking for some attention Mm -hmm. in a way that I wasn't willing to give it yet. Mm -hmm. So I just started like putting out a yoga mat in the morning and doing some stretches. And like sometimes my three-year-old will join me and sometimes I skip a day and I feel it. Um, But that's kind of good enough. Yes. I don't have to like do a 90-minute vinyasa class for it to count as yoga. That's right? not the point of yoga either. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I have struggled myself too with just, you know, well, I am actively working on my mindfulness and meditation and have been for, I guess, about three years. But again, like, is my meditation practice good enough? And it's mm. like, it is what it is, right? Like, there are right. days that it, it works and it's, I'm in it and I mean, it works well anyway. And it's not about working. It's whether I do it or not. And if I don't, that's okay too. That, that's okay well, too. And, you know, as my teacher, Susan Piper says, you don't meditate to become a good meditator. Right. right <laughs> you meditate right. to become good at your life. Yes. Right. You know, to be more in tune with self and yeah, just, yeah, to. For me, meditation is about learning more about me. And and, yeah. and by doing that, that opens me up to others in a yeah. way that's very different. And Just so interesting. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's yeah. not about checking a box every day. No. Which no. is why I hate the, the apps that like give you the stats of like how frequently you meditate. <laughs> and like constantly going in there and like cleaning out the, the data. Because I don't want to know. No, doesn't that's not that's not relevant. No, it's not. I'm not meditating to crush it. I'm like <laughs> meditating to like try to show up in my life for myself, for the people yeah. I work with, for my family. Right, right. Mm. So, um, if you were to um, offer a tip or a resource or both to the audience, what might that be, or what might they be? I think one of the simplest things that we can do is to start developing a self-compassion practice. Because mm. I really do think that that opens up the space to figure out what's actually happening and what do we need. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned that you're going to have Susan Piver on at mm-hmm. a future time. Yep. I, I would also say go on SusanPiver.com and sign up for the Open Heart Project. Mm, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. it's a wonderful way to just begin a meditation practice. Yes, but you can also go to selfcompassion.org. Mm, such a great Christine, resource. Yeah, yeah. Kristen Neff. Neff website, oh, yeah, and just read about you know the three things: what self-compassion is and what it is not. Mm-hmm. Just start there. Yeah, and then just start to notice the tone of your own soundtrack. Yeah. Could you start to move that toward more neutral terms? Mm -hmm. And then once you get better at at being neutral, speaking to yourself in neutral terms, could you shift that more towards self-compassion? Yeah, I would say that I would 100% agree with you there. And it just opens, I think it just opens doors to, I don't know, to yourself, I guess. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very yeah, it's a great resource and some great meditations and daily self practice. Yeah, she has free practice. meditations on there. There's mm-hmm. also free meditations that she has on the Insight Timer. Oh, um, nice! I didn't. Yeah, realize. nice. 
I have clients sometimes that sneak off into the bathroom at work and do like the five minute self compassion break. Ah, oh, I love that. I yeah. Love that. It's again, I, small imperfect steps are what actually make a difference. Yes. Time. Yes. Well, and two, I mean, for women in particular, but because women's bathrooms tend to be more. Um, you have a space to be by yourself, mm-hmm. even just with the stall closed or whatever. But <laughs> like, to me, that's my when people are like, our clients are saying, you know, I'm going to this overwhelming event, I don't know how to take care of myself. I'm like, go to the bathroom, mm-hmm. take a few minutes, look, you know, if you get a minute, look at yourself in the mirror, <laughs> take a few deep breaths. But yes, I like that self compassion break in the bathroom. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, so how do people find your book that's coming out soon? Well, it is available for pre-order um, nice. on Amazon coming oh, out January awesome. 15th. Cool. Um, and they can also um, sign up for my newsletter at eattolove.com. Um, awesome. And I'll be updating people about the book. Um through my little communications on a weekly basis as well. Yeah. Um, And people can find you there as well to work with you if they wanted to. Exactly. Yeah. I work with people virtually and also in person. Um, So, you know, if you're not in New York city, it's totally fine. Um, Cool. We use FaceTime and sometimes Skype and it's like being in the same room together. It is. It's great. Well, that's awesome. Well, I, Jenna, I really appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us about disordered eating and body image and just mm, learning how to be more in tune with just who we are, where we are right now. Well, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Jenna. I think my takeaway is that We aren't a one-size-fits-all body shape. It just isn't reality. It isn't healthy. And that acceptance of who we are, how we look, what our body shape is, can lead to greater mental health, greater physical health, greater overall balance in our lives. And that this perpetuation of what we should look like through the media and culture can have harmful effects. Well, I hope you go forward in this new year in January and build a new relationship with yourself and your body. As always, all the resources will be included in the show notes. And um, I look forward to our next episode of the podcast. Thank you, listeners and subscribers, for continuing to tune in and follow and subscribe. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Ciao for now from This Woman Warrior. Thanks for listening and subscribing to the Woman Warriors podcast. Music was written and performed by Andy Cush. If you'd like more information on this episode, you can find the show notes, the resources shared today, and links to the guests' profiles at womanwarriors.com.